Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Okay, why don't we turn in our Bibles to the book of 2 Peter. Well, two weeks ago, when Brother Jerry was up here, uh, he mentioned something and it sparked a thought in, in my, my mind about what to preach, because I was, I was uh, going back and forth as to what to, to uh, preach on today. And, and then last week, when Jim was here, he, he was speaking, and, and his, one of his last points really was basically the introduction to this, this message. So that was, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall everything be established, and, and that, that, Lord, that was it. That was uh, uh, to be sure what you wanted me to, to speak about. And that topic is uh, false prophets, false teachers, false like I said, false prophets, and, I, and again, I'm not talking about uh, Enron's balance sheets. I'm talking about people who are all around us, constantly all around us, who profess to be believers in Christ, and yet their preaching is, uh, or teaching is contrary to the plain statements of the Word of God. And this, this always causes a little bit of, well, frustration at times. It causes a little bit of anger at times. How do we, what do we do? How do we deal with, with such individuals? How do we do with such circumstances? Specifically, what I want to talk about is how we can tell in our day and age who is a false teacher. And who is not? What are, we, what are we supposed to do about it? After all, there is a wide variety of ideas and, and, uh, claim, and claims all claiming to be Christian. But what do we do about it? And there's a corollary to this as well. When we think about ourselves and, and examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, as Paul warns us to do, how do I know that I'm not a, that I'm not a false teacher? How do I know that what I tell people is absolutely true? Particularly because I know that someday I'm going to stand before the Lord God of heaven, look Him square in the eye, and have to give an account for everything that I've said everything that I've done, and give pause and think about that for a minute. And if that doesn't uh, uh, create quite an awesome thought in your mind, I think we need to go back to square one. Who is God? 
Well, today, again, I want to spend a little bit of time looking at false teachers and false prophets. What are their characteristics and, and what are the results that they gain? And how we can be assured that God doesn't classify us as such. In 2 Peter, now that you've all turned there, I, I hope. In 2 Peter, Peter is... is prophetically throughout this book warning the church about conditions and circumstances and situations that they're going to face. And these have been true down through the ages and particularly as we get closer and closer and closer to the return of Christ, these circumstances become all the more clear particularly when you get into chapter 3. And, uh, but we're not going to get that far. Of course, then again, I do have an hour and a half. But I do want to just focus on uh, the first three verses. And we'll be skipping around some other places too in the, in the Word. In, again, 2 Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long time is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. One of the first things, what are the characteristics of a false teacher? After all, if I'm going to be aware of this, what do I look for to let me know who is a false teacher? And the first point that Peter makes concerning false teachers, concerning their characteristics, and it's something that we really need to, to understand, is the very beginning of verse 1, but false, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. That first point is that their presence is inevitable. They are here. They are always among us. We, we walk and talk with people who are true believers in Christ and people who are not true believers in Christ. But they all profess to be Christians. One of the first points that was ever made to me, and it, st it struck me uh, when I first got saved, one of the very first points that the fellow who led me to the Lord and discipled me in, in Christ made to me was, Satan is always active. He will always attempt to put an eyedropper of lie into an ocean of truth. Because he knows 
if he is diligent enough, and he is diligent enough, pretty soon there will be an ocean of lie with an eyedropper of truth. He will always have his people in the midst of the truth of God seeking to inject doctrines, beliefs, customs, ideas, philosophies, everything to sow confusion. Everything contrary to the Word of God. So this is an issue that we must deal with. We cannot pretend that everything is okay. And that everything that is presented as truth is truth. Because not everything, all truth is God's truth. Absolutely, all truth is God's truth. Because God is truth. But not everything that is presented as truth is true. And we need to be discerning. We all know that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Do you ever, have you ever thought about how the Lord, or I should say how Satan, seeks to devour people? One of his most effective weapons is confusion. Sowing confusion among the flock. All too often we, we are sort of like the, the uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex in Toy Story. Oh, I hate confrontation! We don't like it. It's uncomfortable. There's very few people that I know who really relish getting into a confrontation. Now, there are some people who apparently do because they practice it well. But most people don't enjoy this sort of confrontation, this sort of no that is not correct. And I must admit, I'm one of those people who don't like confrontation. I do it I ha- because I have to do it. But that doesn't, I don't look for it. But we cannot, we are, Dare not go into the mode of, can't we all just get along? Because, no, we cannot. Because light cannot walk with darkness. Truth cannot be mingled with error and remain true. Hold your place here and turn with me to Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 20. Paul is speaking to 
the elders of Ephesus. And he's, he's wishing them, he's telling them goodbye because he plans, his, as far as his, he knows, he will never again see them face to face. And he had spent years with them, developing them, teaching them, discipling them, building them up in the faith. He had become very, very close to these men. And as he was hurrying back to Jerusalem, he didn't even want to go to Ephesus He called them to himself. And this is part of his message to them. In verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now that's that's, that's serious enough. Because as elders, we're responsible for protecting the flock. One of those of you, I don't know, a few of you have been to my house and you know that we are, our house is overrun with animals. <laughs> but uh, I mean, we have you know, five cats, three dogs, and, and that's, you know, if you ever noticed any of my clothing, it's, it's odd where there's a square inch that there's not covered with fur. But one of our dogs is a shepherd. She's a very, very good dog. But one thing I found out with the German shepherd, they don't herd the flock of sheep. They were never bred to herd sheep. They were bred to guard sheep. They constantly ran around the flock And if they saw a danger to the flock, they would run at it. You ever seen how police dogs will will chase the the person that the the police officer is trying to to get and they'll, they'll run smash into them? That's what my dog does to everybody. And we and we have we have this we also have a a a golden retriever. And he's about seven or eight, and he's starting to slow down. And uh, Charlotte loves this golden retriever. So she sees him, and she tears right off at him and starts running. When he sees her coming at him, he starts going in a circle to try to deflect because, because she'll smash right into him. But that is the job of the elders, to protect the flock, to guard from danger. And what does Paul tell these elders? You're not going to do your job. You're going to fail because there are people that's going to come into this flock, this church in Ephesus, and they're going to destroy it. And if that's not bad enough, look at verse 30.
And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Not only are you going to fail, you are going to be subverted yourselves. So that instead of pointing people to Christ, you're going to get people to look at you. We are inundated with false teachers. And it's a reality. Every single one of us is responsible for being aware of the truth of the Word of God and be discerning enough to know what is truth and what is not truth. If we want to, to add to this, just you don't need to turn there. Matthew 7:15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are they are ravening wolves. Again, the same message. Beware of them. Be alert for them. Be prepared for them. Because they're in our midst. And the point is, what do, we, what do we do about it? One very important issue to this is because they are in the midst, the casual observer won't be able to tell the difference. We dare not allow ourselves to be casual observers. We must. We must be actively engaged in teaching, in learning, in following the truth and making sure that everybody around us with whom we have contact is equally versed. Upholding each other in prayer, building up one another in the most holy faith. What does Jude tell us in verse 3? To earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. What does earnestly contend for mean? Well, I'm, I'm, I really don't want to get into a confrontation. Well, that's not, that won't ring true no we don't want to get into a conversation no it can get ugly it can get messy but cancer is a messy thing too and you have to cut it out or else it will only get worse one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God 
except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking. I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battle fronts besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Martin Luther had his false teachers to contend with. And can he was an amazing man, just a utterly amazing man to stand in the face of the entire weight of the religious establishment of his day and stand he did we do have heroic notions of him as standing boldly at the at the diet of worms and say here i stand i can do no other well it wasn't quite that bold but he did stand And he could do no other because he was committed to the Word of God. They are in our midst. Their presence is inevitable. But what's the next thing that Peter points out? But false... Prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. The next thing that Peter points out is that once they are in the church, they introduce infectious doctrines into the church that are contrary to the truth that God has given us. Now let's be very clear about one point before we go on. There is a body of objective truth that we can know and we can say this is right and that is wrong. How many times has pastor made that same thing, made that same point? You cannot be muddle-headed and say, well, what, what's, what he's saying is right for him, even though it might not be right for me. No. There is truth. There is objective truth. There is a right and there is a wrong And whoever teaches contrary to this objective truth is a false teacher. And it's a, he's a subject of Peter's prophetic statements here. But we're going to talk a little bit more about that objective truth as we go through this message. But these doctrines are not only false, 
What does Peter say? They are destructive. They are destructive heresies. Now, the idea of the word destructive is not destroying something that it, so that it no longer exists. That's not the idea of the word. The idea of the word is that it entirely corrupts its target so that it is, what is corrupted is useless as far as its original intent. It infects that which into which it is introduced. Here's an illustration. Let's see, is this thing turned on? It's not. Can we turn it on? Uh, it, there's lights on it, so. Okay. Okay. Well, so much for that illustration. I was going to play a note and then sing a note just slightly under pitch. That's close, right? It's almost right on. Isn't that good enough? What, would, what do you do when you hear somebody singing like this? There was a, we had a fellow at, at school that blessed brother in Christ loves the Lord. But he literally could not tell the difference between two notes if they were within the same octave. He couldn't hear the difference. And nobody wanted to stand next to him in chapel because nobody could, he, he would influence everybody else around him. The, the brother wanted to go to the mission field to Germany and he was so tone deaf he could not pick up a different language. The brothers in Australia on the mission field. Speaking English. He came, we had him for a meal uh, a couple of years ago and, and uh, he said, yeah, my son, my son was born in Australia but he doesn't have an Australian accent. And his son said, Blimey! Look at that! But Jim couldn't hear the difference. What am I illustrating? Close is the start of an infection that gets worse and worse and worse if it is not kept in check. If you cannot tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong, then it's just going to 
to go wild. And that's the idea of this word. These lies are injected into the body of truth. And little by little by little, they eat away of that body of truth until the body of truth can even be recognized anymore. Two weeks ago, Jerry mentioned Joel Osteen, who said Jesus wasn't God, but was a good man who attained God-like status. What is he doing? He's brought in a heresy that makes the body of the truth of God impotent. I wonder if he'd ever read uh, John 8, 24. Jesus said to the Pharisees, except you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, in all the, on all the versions, you'll see it translated, I am he. But you'll notice the he is in italics. It's not there. He was a directly claiming to be, I am that I am, as he once spoke to Moses. Tell them that I am sent you to them. The absolute being. What about the, the continuous, the insidiousness of this? Here's another illustration. Charles Templeton. Anybody ever heard of Charles Templeton? Was an evangelist back in the 30s and 40s, 1930s, 1940s, right along with Billy Graham. Two of them came into prominence together. Probably many people believe Charles Templeton to have been a bigger evangelist than Billy Graham. But Charles Templeton listened to an insidious lie. But he believed it. And the thing is, he followed it to its logical conclusion. And that logical conclusion was his last book that he wrote, Farewell to God. And he finished that shortly before he died. Now, many of you know that I, I have as one of the major points of my ministry uh, creationism, particularly six-day uh, creationism with the earth, young earth, six-day creationism. And this is why Mr. Templeton, this is the error that Mr. Templeton believed. Because he was taught and believed that the world was billions of years old. Now you say, how can that possibly lead you to atheism? Follow this logic with me, please. 
If the world is billions of years old, then death always existed. Because nothing lives for that long. Death has always been part of this world. Not the punishment for sins, as Paul states very clearly in Romans. Therefore, A, the Bible is wrong. B, and here's the kicker, God created death. God created death. God created suffering. God created pain. Therefore, there is no such thing as a good, loving God as the Bible presents. All because he believed what appears to be an innocuous lie. Mr. Templeton's faith, professed faith in Christ, rotted from the inside out until it was useless, and he abandoned even professing the idea that God exists. These false teachers not only introduce false doctrine, they do so insidiously, that is, secretly. All the while pretending to be godly Christians and proclaiming to, be, to the, tr the truth. A book I have on my, in my library was written many, a number of years ago. I think it was in, written in the mid-70s. Uh, it was written by Harold Linzel. It's called The Battle for the Bible. Now, Mr. Linzel would not hold the same doctrinal position that we would hold. But in this book, he chronicles how denomination after denomination, seminary after seminary, was infiltrated by men who misrepresented themselves as believing doctrines that they did not believe. They even would sign doctrinal statements of how they would follow and teach, but they did not teach it. And all the while, teaching in class ideas that rotted the very fabric of truth. The end result is that the pastors and leaders produced by those seminaries held on to doctrines contrary to the truth, and we've ended up with the mess that we have today. Denominations ordaining homosexual pastors and not being able to see that there's any difference between the two? Does the Bible not say anything about homosexuality? I think there's a word or three in there. In one extreme example, there is a church 
a Lutheran church in Europe defending their pastor who was a professing atheist. But he has the right to believe that, doesn't he? And be a pastor of a Lutheran church? I think Martin Luther would have a thing or three to say to him. I think he'd throttle him. Now notice what the, the ironic statement that Peter has in here. That they secretly introduced destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. Taking the whole body of truth, the, the essentials of Christianity that deal with the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and denying them as being true. That God was, or that Jesus was eternally God, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, rose again, defeating death, and is coming again, denying all of them and yet claiming to be a Christian. And I think as, as Peter prophetically saw this, he was aghast. How could somebody call themselves a Christian and deny the very foundation of Christianity? But they do. Well, what are the results of a false teacher? First one, many will follow their sensuality. The first fruit that Peter mentions is multitudes of followers. Now, one of the grossest distortions of reality that Satan has pushed on us is the idea that the mark of success for a church is size, is volume, is big crowds. And I say it's a distortion because which one of us would not want to see thousands of people come under the influence of the gospel right in this church? Who wouldn't want to see people getting saved right and left? But never, ever at the expense of truth. In contrast, to a false, in contrast, a false teacher will object to the truth that he thinks people will object, object to. Again, hold your place here and compare what Jesus does in John chapter 6, verse 53. 53 through 70. We don't have time to read through this whole passage but this is one of the more interesting passages in, in the book of John. John chapter 6. Starting in verse 53. 
Well, let's back up to 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, except unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Now what in the world is Jesus saying? And why is he saying it? If we were to get in the context, and, and we're not going to do that right here, we would see that he had already equated eating his flesh with faith and trust in his shed blood. He had already equated that in the context, but they, the Jews missed it. And so he's going to press home this point that would be purposely repugnant to his listeners. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and, are, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven so that the man may eat and not die. I am the living bread. He goes on. Let me skip over to... Uh, uh, well, let's, let's... Let's go to uh, verse 61. Oh, let's back up to 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What if you, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who would not believe and who it was that would betray him. Look at verse 66. As a result of this, many of disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Hey, there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. And then Peter gave his, his great confession of faith. Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ. Lord, we're committed to you. We do not turn away. Let's be reminded of the fact that as humans, we are utterly, completely, and totally in rebellion against God. All our natural re reactions are to reject God and His truth. 
As a result, every single person in the world will reject truth until God graciously works in them to bring about, as Jim mentioned last week, the repentance. Now, how cruel is it for people to think that they are following the truth when in reality they believe a lie? They're on their way to hell, but we keep continuously encouraging them to believe a lie. The most gracious thing that we can do is make them aware that they're not saved. Now, there have been times in the past when it's been fashionable to profess Christianity. There have been times in the past when Christianity has been forced on people. But in reality, the gate is straight, the way is narrow and few that be that find it. We will always be in a minority. How many people were, were in the world when the flood came? Millions, possibly a billion. And how many were saved? Eight. The second fruit... As Peter says, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. Not only are there multitudes of followers at the expense of truth, they also malign the truth when it is spoken. They'll belittle it. Here's a, here's a quote that uh, uh, an individual who attended a conference where Ken Ham recently spoke. As you know, Ken Ham, you may or may not know, Ken Ham is the founder of Answers in Genesis and very strongly uh, makes, makes a clear distinction between truth and error, particularly in the realms of, of creationism. But this individual was right, filling out a, uh, uh, a statement, a summary, his reaction to the, uh, the uh, conference. And it says, part of it, his statement was, The presentation was alienating and outrageous. Mr. Ham acted as a fearmonger against people of, not of his particular beliefs. Now, everybody can believe what they want to believe, Right? His polarizing use of I versus them language was terrifying propaganda and completely unchristlike. Well, that's that's interesting. It's completely unchristlike. Did Jesus ever use us versus them language? I wonder if this person ever read Matthew 10, 34 through 36. Do not think that I've come to bring peace into the world. I tell you, not peace, but a sword. 
I've come to set a, a mother against her daughter and a father against his son and a mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law. Or maybe uh, Matthew 20, or 12, verse 30, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Is that us versus them language? Did Jesus ever malign people that opposed him? You ever read Matthew 23? Snakes? It's been a long time since I've called somebody a snake. And I guarantee you, I've, I've heard Ken Ham speak many, many times. He does not use I versus them language, but he always makes a clear line of demarcation between truth and error. And he doesn't call people snakes either. He might call them snike, because he is Australian, but at any rate. But this is what we can expect. You can be guaranteed that if you stand up for the truth in our world, you will be the object of continual derision, hatred, strife, just like the true prophets. Anybody want to volunteer to go into a hollow log and get sawed in half? And I also guarantee you this, that the most venomous, the most vindictive, the most hateful opposition will be that which comes from professing Christians. Well, how can I tell, that leaves us with the point, how can I tell who they are and that I'm not, that God does not count me as one of them. Hold your place here again. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Here Moses is going to give us a clue about how to test individuals. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you. So here's this guy, he does a miracle. He does a miracle in front of everybody. Now that, that gets some pretty good attention, right? It might Raise somebody from the dead or, or uh, uh, heal somebody right in front of our eyes. Does that create the standard of measurement? You shall not, and then back up in the middle of verse 2, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, 
For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him, and you shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice, serve Him and cling to Him. But the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord our God. What is the standard by which we judge? What does it say in verse 4? You shall follow the Lord your God and fear Him. You shall keep His commandments, listen to His voice. Where do we hear the Lord's voice? It's in the Word of God. Also, turn with me to Isaiah. We'll go quickly through this. The book of Isaiah Chapter 8. And verses 19 and 20. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. And to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word... It is because they have no light in them. And this whole context is about dwelling on whether to consult with mediums or, or other speakers to the law and to the testament. If they don't preach the word of God, what it says, it's because no matter what they profess, they have no light in them. We have a body of truth that is developed from the Word of God. Whoever teaches contrary to that body of truth is a false teacher. Unfortunately, in our day and age, we need to qualify that because there are so many who go around saying something, well, the Bible says this, but what it really means is In this church, we use what I like to call a normal interpretation of the Word of God. Now, we're not going to get into the real, a lot of complexity here and technical description. If somebody wants to talk to me about it, I'd be glad to. But it's best summed up with this old saying. This is not original with me. If the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, but take the plain understanding of the words presented. If the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. Now also, don't say, don't let anybody say that we take a literal interpretation of Scripture, because we don't. There's plenty of room for literary device in Scripture, particularly in the poetic sections. We do not believe, for example, if you were to read Isaiah 55, 12, that leaves have hands, or trees have hands to clap. Because the trees in the field will clap their hands, right? 
We do not believe that God has wings. Physical wings. We do not believe that Pharisees ate camels whole. In Matthew 23, verse 24. There is hyperbole in Scripture. There is poetic words in Scripture. But even those poetic words have a normal, natural meaning in their context. Whenever you hear a preacher saying something that is contrary to the Word of God or what you have heard previously, it should make your eyebrows raise. Oh, what's going on here? And that's when we need to be Acts 17.11 Christians. Everybody knows what I'm referring to here. But they that were in Berea were more noble than they in Thessalonica because, well, there's a, there's a first step to this. They received the word with all readiness of mind. And then they searched the word daily. They're ready. They're hungry to hear the word of God. They're ready to get it. They wanted to listen to Paul. But when he said something, oh, I've never heard that before. I'm going to get into the word of God. Because Paul's not the standard the Word of God is the standard. Well, that means I have to read and, and even study my Bible. That means I have to get it out of the closet and blow the dust off it. Yes, it does. It takes diligence. It takes effort, and it takes a conscious choice to reevaluate my priorities. This is something that I'm constantly telling me. Whenever I say, well, I didn't have time. No, you had the same amount of time that anybody else did in the day. You have 24 hours in the day, and eight of which you have to sleep. What are you going to do with the other 16? That's a priority choice. That's not a time choice. Because you do what is important to you. But this is the only way you will ever assure yourself before the Lord God of heaven that you are His servant doing His will in His way in His time for His glory. Is there anybody here who doesn't want that for an epitaph? I was God's servant doing His will in His way at his time for his glory. Lessons for our lives. Understand that these that there are false 
teachers throughout this world. Number one, inside our churches, outside our churches, it doesn't matter. We are constantly bombarded with lies. And this is one of the ways, as I said, this is one of the ways that Satan presses his attack against Christians and against the church by sowing confusion, distraction, and keeping people away from the truth of the Word of God. Do not think that everybody who says that they're serving the Lord and preaching the truth really are. Number two, never be judgmental about the size of one congregation compared to another. The size of the church is irrelevant. There are big churches and little churches that, pre that preach the truth. And there are big churches and little churches that preach error. It is not, I should say, it is the content of their preaching, not the contents of their building, that is important. Number three, have a healthy skepticism of every message that you hear, including the ones from this pulpit and the ones from this mouth. Have a healthy skepticism of it. And I say a healthy skepticism because skepticism is like snake venom. Too much is going to kill you. But, what is the antidote for snake venom? Snake venom. Just a little bit. A little bit is good. A lot will kill you. The Bereans exhibited a healthy skepticism. And again, they are always ready to hear what Paul had to say. But they are always going to, to examine it based on the Word of God. Number four, that standard is and always must be the plain, straightforward understanding of the Word of God. That does not include what you can make the Bible say by lifting verses out of context and twisting their meaning. Even if the plain meaning of the text seems incredible to us and we just don't understand it, well, I don't understand nuclear fusion either, but I believe it. I may not understand passages of the Word of God, but it's the Word of God. Therefore, I believe it. And I'll trust Him to reveal to me what I currently do not understand in His time and in His way. Number five and last, 
Maybe you're here today and have never come to the point where you've trusted Christ as your Savior. You've seen yourself as a sinner and you've thrown yourself at His feet. I'd love for you to do that today. There's many, many confusions out there. The Word of God has the truth. Let's pray. Our Lord.